As you're taking your seats this morning, just a sort of a question for you all. Has any of you, have any of you ever stepped barefooted upon a Lego? Yeah, the, the scenario typically is it's the middle of the night, all of the lights are off, you have your bare feet, you're tr- going somewhere maybe to get a drink, you step on a Lego, and it hurts. It might be one of the worst pains I've ever experienced. Now, I've not ever given birth, for obvious reasons, and I don't want to equate stepping on a Lego barefooted with childbirth in any way, but stepping on a childbirth is a, or stepping on a childbirth, (laughs) (sighs) nice, nice, my tang got tangled. Stepping on a Lego barefoot is a very particular kind of suffering. And because we hate suffering, we always make sure that our kids put their Legos away before they go to bed, right? Amen. Preach it. Help him, Jesus. I mean, that's the truth. Unless you are one of those weird people who really like to run half marathons, we don't like to suffer. And I'm looking at my wife directly because she is one of those weird people who like to run half marathons. We hate suffering. We do everything we can to avoid it. Think about that just as we begin the sermon this morning. Because as Peter begins his first letter, as he begins his letter to these churches and these believers in Jesus in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, he begins to talk to them about suffering. And he begins to talk to them about suffering, not in terms of being able to avoid it, not in terms of what to do to mitigate it or negate it, but in terms of how to live in the midst of it. And so for a culture, uh, for a people, it's natural for us to despise, detest, avoid suffering. It can be jarring for us to hear Peter say that elect exiles, those who are chosen by God, redeemed by God through Jesus Christ, and are now strangers or foreigners, wherever they may be living, are to rejoice in the midst of suffering. We are supposed to have joy in the flames. Now that's just kind of mind-boggling, right? You know, we talk about something silly like a Lego, but what about greater persecution? What about social ostracism? What about being marginalized in society? What about the very real possibility that because believers in Jesus do not share in the first priorities, the values, the customs, the beliefs, or the morals of the cultures and societies around them, that they may be economically pressed? that they may be gossiped about, lied about, that they may be marginalized. We're supposed to rejoice in that? That's what what Peter says. As we look at uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12, if you have your, your Bibles, open them there. If you have your phone, I'm sure you have a Bible on your phone, like all good believers in Jesus these days kind of a joke. I got a pity laugh from Chris back there. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting from 3 through 12. And as we begin to talk a, a little bit this morning about this idea that elect exiles rejoice in trials or in suffering, as we begin to talk about that, we have to recognize that there are at least 
two very easily identified kinds of suffering. One Peter is talking about and one Peter is not talking about. On the one hand, sometimes we suffer because we're stupid and we make bad decisions. Those Kaleo students who go to Oklahoma State know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Because while the words, hold my beer and watch this, often lead to some of the funniest stories, they also lead to suffering that is a direct result of us being stupid and making bad decisions. Not that the Kaleo students from Oklahoma State do those things, but I guarantee you they know somebody who has. Because they're from Oklahoma. I don't think Peter's writing about that kind of suffering, okay? There's another kind of easily identified suffering, and that which is brought to bear upon a believer in Jesus simply and specifically because they are a believer in Jesus. And as a believer in Jesus, they open themselves uh, to suffering, to persecution, Because they're exiles. They are strangers in a strange world. They do not share in the beliefs, the values, the morals, the customs, the first priorities of the world around them. And so simply because they believe in Jesus, they are pushed to the fringes of society. Perhaps they have economic problems coming down upon them. They are lied about, slandered because they're treated as oddballs and weirdos. Suffering because of Jesus is what Peter is writing about. This is the type of suffering that, in which Peter expects believers in Jesus to rejoice. And if we come to the end of our sermon this morning and you are able to walk away understanding that ex, uh, elect exiles are able to rejoice even while suffering because of what God has done and promises to do for them through Jesus, if that's all you remember, I'm happy. Because these, these verses come back to that big idea, that main point. Elect exiles are able to rejoice even while suffering trials because of what God has done and what God promises to do through Jesus. Let's begin by asking that question, well, what has God done? I'm glad you asked. Peter addresses that immediately. If you look at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter here starts off with pure praise. This is a statement of praise to God for what he has done for believers in Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are words that that echo what Melchizedek says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. These are words that, that echo what some of the psalmists use in the psalms themselves, saying, blessed be God. He has done great things. Blessed be God because he is creator, he is sustainer. Blessed be God here through uh, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why praise God? Why say blessed be God? Simply because of this, he saves. According, Peter writes, to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last 
time. Peter begins his letter with a simple statement of praise. Praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise because he has, according to his great mercy, given new life, new hope, and a new inheritance. And so how is it, how is it that believers in Jesus can rejoice in the face of suffering? Because God has given new life, he has given new hope, and he will give a new inheritance. Beginning in verse 3, we see that God has caused them to be born again to a living hope. God gives new life. We cannot ever get past this. We never grow away from this. We never grow beyond the simple recognition that in Jesus Christ, God makes those sinners who are dead in their sins alive. And folks, that's you, and that's me, and that's us, and that's these, the, the original audience of, of Peter's first letter. Dead in their sins, born again by God according to his great mercy through Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen on that? You can never get past that. We can never get past that in any, any way to have joy in the flames of persecution must begin with what God has done for us. And what has God done for us? He has caused us to be born again. Something that we cannot do on ourselves. Something that we cannot do for ourselves, God does for us. And this being born again carries with it two great benefits. The first is a living hope, and second is an inheritance. Hope. I know that I've made a big deal about hope before. And more than likely, I'll continue to make a big deal about hope because, quite frankly, it is a big deal. Even you, Dave. <laughs> you see, it's a big deal because our world, our world gets the concept of hope completely wrong. Our world uses hope to communicate the idea, but it's really just wishful thinking. I hope the Red Sox make the playoffs. It's wishful thinking because it is based on an absolutely futile thing. <laughs> the rag arms of the starting pitchers for the Red Sox. And yet our world uses the word hope in so many ways simply as wishful thinking. Well, I hope this happens, but what they're really saying is, I really don't think this is going to happen, but I want to be an optimist. I want you to think I'm an optimist, so I hope that it does. Biblically, that is not what hope means at all. Biblically, hope is completely different as it's actually a confident expectation. The Golden State Warriors at Christmas of last year could say, well, I hope we make the playoffs confidently because they won 73 games. They're the best team in the league until they met LeBron James and the Cleveland Cavaliers. Like Oklahoma State Cowboys saying, you know, I hope we win the Big 12. And then they get to that game at the end of November and they lose and they don't win the Big 12. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Here in 1 Peter, this hope that believers hold, notice this, is based not upon something futile like the starting pitching of the Boston Red Sox, but it is based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's a living hope. 
It's a living hope because it's a true hope. It's a living hope. It's, it's active. It's confident because it's based upon the living one. It's not based upon somebody who died and stayed dead. It's based upon somebody who died and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that resides in us, by the way, was raised from the dead and continues to live today and for the rest of all time. So that's a a confident, expectant, I can count on what God has said he will do because Jesus is alive. And because we've been born again, we're born into this living hope. And in the midst of the fire of trials, what brings us joy other than knowing, hey, no matter what it is right now, it hurts. But I know that Jesus is alive and those things that God has promised, he will do because Jesus is alive. And if this wasn't enough... Right? If it wasn't enough that God causes us to be born again and that God gives us this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if that wasn't enough, he also gives us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. Living hope is something that we can have now in the present tense. It's something that we have now in the year 2016 at 1126 on July 10th. We have living hope now. But an inheritance is something that you receive in the future. And notice that this this future inheritance, life with God in heaven, the the new kingdoms, the the new kingdom, uh, the new heavens, the new earth, uh, the place where there is no death, there is no pain, there is no sorrow, that inheritance in God's very presence through Jesus Christ is something in the future kept in heaven by the God who gives it. It's a gift that cannot decay. This inheritance is unbound by anything of this creation. It cannot decay. It's imperishable. It will not die. This gift is is something that is not and cannot be polluted by sin. It's undefiled. And this gift that God keeps in heaven, this inheritance, cannot wither or dim. The most beautiful flower in this world will wither and dim. But the inheritance that God gives to his people through Jesus Christ is unfading. And he keeps it. It's not something like a credit card that you can put into your wallet or your purse and then lose it. It ain't based on you and you don't have to keep it. Is based on God, and he keeps it. And so how, in the face of trial, how, in the face of persecution, do you perhaps have joy knowing that God has an inheritance for you that this world cannot touch? Nobody can break in and steal it. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, no one can snatch my people out of my hand. He goes even further and says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's how you have joy in the midst of flames. And it gets even better than that. Can you believe this? I am trying. It gets even better because this inheritance that's kept in heaven for the believers in Jesus, the believers in Jesus are uh, are themselves kept, guarded by God's power through faith. Think about that just for a second. Because I'm not sure that I can really grasp a hold of how amazing this grace is. God does that which is necessary for sinful humans to be born again 
into this living hope and inheritance. He keeps that inheritance safe. And then Peter tells us he guards those who are born again by his power through their faith. That's pretty sweet. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We wonder why Peter praises God. We wonder why we can rejoice in the midst of trials. Because it ain't about you and it ain't about me. It's about God. God energizes. You wonder why the power of the Holy Spirit is so important for a believer's life? It is through the Holy Spirit that, that God energizes and sustains personal faith. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts us of our sin, builds us up knowing that there is no condemnation, bringing us to our knees of repentance and raising us in the assurance of forgiveness. It is the Holy Spirit that energizes and sustains. It is through the Holy Spirit that he protects and keeps until that salvation is revealed when Jesus comes again. You want to have joy in flames? Count on what God has done and what God promises to do. And there's even more. Because this privileged position This privileged position of elect exiles is one that even the prophets of the Old Testament and the angels in heaven do not have in this particular way. We read that that concerning this salvation, this receiving the inheritance, the, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. But it was not it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And these things into which angels even long to look. Can we see now why Peter offers praise to God? Because of what God has done and what God has promised to do. Can we see now why Peter says that elect exiles rejoice even in suffering? Because of what God has done and what God has promised to do. He gives elect exiles. The elect exiles, new birth into a living hope. He gives elect exiles a future inheritance which he keeps in heaven. And God protects these elect exiles in his power through their faith and has blessed them with the privilege of knowing Jesus. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." When Peter writes, in this you rejoice, he points his audience then and now. He points us back to the amazing grace of what God has done and what God promises to do that he outlined in verses 3 through 5. And so in the midst of trial, we're able to rejoice because of what God has done. He has caused us to be born again. He has given us a living hope. He has created for us an inheritance that he keeps. He is guarding us by his power through our faith. It might be necessary to be grieved by trials. Notice that Peter does say that. It may be necessary. Part of the issue is that it may be necessary simply because of the identity of a believer. An exile 
does not share in the beliefs, priorities, values, and customs of the world, and thus is made to suffer by the world. You have to understand, folks, that the world is not our friend. Biblically, the world, the cosmos, is that which is under the reign of Satan, the fallen world, aligned against God and the people of God, and the world puts pressure upon believers in Jesus in order to them, in order to get them to mitigate their strangeness. Don't be so weird. Don't hold on to Jesus quite so much. Don't obey quite so much. Give in just a little bit in order to get along. That's what the world does, and the the pressure takes different forms. It can be slander, it can be gossip, it can be social ostracism. We're starting to see in this country different things, bakers losing their business, florists being put out of business. Those are uh, pressures put upon believers by the world in order for them to give up. And believers, elect exiles, guarded by God's power through their faith, when they hold fast to their faith in Jesus... They're simultaneously doing two things. They are proclaiming the gospel to an unbelieving world, and they are testifying to themselves that they are indeed elect exiles. And so it could be necessary. It could be necessary because believers in Jesus are strangers in a strange land, growing all the more stranger as time goes by. It could be necessary because through his trials, God is doing work. He's purifying faith. Now, I know that there's a fine line between a hostage situation and a long sermon. (laughs) And I know, and I know that I'm approaching that line very quickly. I have just a little bit more. Okay, thank you. I've been given permission, so I feel free. These folks here in 1 Peter, they're not suffering because they've somehow failed in their faith. They're suffering because of their faith. They're not suffering because they have inadequate faith. They're suffering because they have stood in the face of those who pinch just a little bit of incense to Caesar, who create, uh, they're, they're, they're suffering because they have stood in the face of those who want them to give up their strangers and said, no, we will bow to no one but Jesus. We will worship no one but Jesus, and we will live according to what Jesus desires for his people. Their faith is in Jesus, and because of that, the world persecutes them. But God wants to see their faith made pure. He wants to see their faith tested and proven to be genuine. And so these trials, you know, the world is thinking, oh, we're going to push these Christians to the outside. We're going to mitigate their, their, their strangeness. But in reality, what's happening is they're doing the Christians a favor because in this situation, God is purifying their faith He is proving it to be genuine, and that will result in glory. Now think about that. Oftentimes when the world thinks it's winning, it's actually losing. The world thought it was winning when Jesus was nailed to the cross, but that was ultimately its defeat because death could not hold him. And so just as gold is refined by fire, so faith is refined by the fires of testing and persecution. And this isn't arbitrary, it isn't unfair, it isn't mean. God allows these things to happen for a purpose. The genuineness of your faith is revealed. As you cling to Jesus, as we cling to Jesus, come what may, 
The genuineness of faith is revealed. As those believers in Syria who were literally crucified because they believed in Jesus, as they clinged to Jesus, clung to Jesus while the nails were driven in, their faith was, was shown to be genuine. God allows these things to happen for a purpose so that in the end, faith that has been refined by the fire of trials and suffering results in praise and in glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the end of all days, God will congratulate those who stand firm in his grace, who have joy in flames. Elect exiles are able to rejoice in the flames of suffering, the flames of testing, by focusing on God and on what God has done and on what God promises to do more than focusing on the fire itself. This doesn't mean that testing and trial doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it isn't painful because it is. Christians don't have any right and to have a Pollyanna-ish faith. You remember Pollyanna, that movie, where she, had, uh, she would play this game, something bad would happen, and she'd basically say, well, at least I'm not this, or at least I'm not that. We don't have a right to do that. We have a right to say, you know what, this, this is really bad, but I have hope in Jesus who is alive. This really is bad. This really does hurt. This really does cost. But I know that there is an inheritance that will not perish, that is undefiled, that will never fade, that is kept by God. And I know that God is, through his power, energizing and sustaining my faith so that I can cling to Jesus come what may. That's what God's glorified in, and that is how we rejoice in the flames. It is somehow, in his ways, God has something better in store, something that requires faith to be purified by the fires of testing. And so with this in mind, in the midst of our suffering, we can join with St. Paul who wrote, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so in the midst of trials, in the midst of suffering, and Peter tells uh, these people at the end of his letter, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. That's really the answer. How do we have joy in flames? Standing in the true grace of God, knowing what he has done through Jesus Christ our Lord and what he promises to do through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the only place that there can be joy in the flames. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious God.